Hello, and welcome to the Plugged In Podcast, where we talk with founders and CEOs in order to bring you the real stories of failures and triumphs, highs and lows they've experienced on their journey towards success. We will go in-depth with our guests to give you insights into how they have taken an idea from concept to realization, making those first key hires to building the right team, scaling revenues, how they overcame obstacles, and much more as we learn how they achieve success. This is the podcast that you want to subscribe to if you want to learn how to succeed. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Plugged In. I'm Ellie Mandelbaum, I'm an industry veteran who decided to do more than just listen to podcasts, but actually start one, in which I interview people much smarter than me. In this episode, we're speaking with Sarah Hofstetter, president of Comscore. Before joining Comscore as president, Sarah spent 13 years at 360i with her last five years as CEO, helping marketers capitalize on industry changes, building best-in-class practices across creative, media, and digital. Under Sarah's watch, 360i grew from a small startup with 30 employees to a household name within the industry with offices across the country and a staff of 1,000 strong. Prior to joining 360i, she was president and founder of Kaya Communications, a marketing agency focused on developing brand strategy and communication plans for new media brands. Before starting her own agency, Sarah started and spent 10 years at Netphone, one of the world's first providers of VoIP technology a series of senior leadership positions. In November 2018, Sarah was elected to the board of directors for Campbell Soup Company. Sarah, welcome to the show, and I hope I covered everything. There's a lot going on there. If not, why don't you fill in the blanks on your background a bit? I think you got it all, Ellie, all the way going back to high school, so <laughs> that's pretty solid. <laughs> Excellent. So we'll jump right in, and, you know, so after you left, you know, college, you know, how did you get started? You know, what did you first do? First things first, internships. I had the most fantastic internships and I went to Queens College, not, you know, necessarily one of the top schools in the country, um, but going to Queens College and being so proximate to New York City, I was a journalism minor, got fantastic internships at the New York Times. And through that, I got really engaged in the art of storytelling because that's so critical for journalism. And my goal originally was to become a journalist and tell stories from of things that were going on around the world, both investigative, feature-based. I was super into that stuff. Um, but it was really hard to pay the bills on a journalism salary. And so both me and my husband uh, were into journalism, and we decided one of us would follow our dreams and one of us <laughs> would follow the money. So I went into the dark arts of public relations, and that is how I ended up at IDT using my journalism uh, background to flip the game a bit and go into public relations and be on the pitching side of developing narratives on behalf of companies. So like journalism with a bias. <laughs> and so you went to IDT and you were there for a while. Yes. Um, and, you know, IDT back then they were, you never know what, what you were going to do. So you had to be like a jack of all trades. Um, and, and that's been kind. Yes. So with IDT, though, you, you started out. And what did you take from there? You know, I'm not going to, I don't want to go into specifics because, again, that's a long time ago. But what did, you know, you know, it was your first, you know, job outside the internship, let's say. Is there anything that you learned that kept, stay with you post? Oh, Absolutely. Um, the importance of communication internally, I would say, is probably the most important thing I learned. So sometimes you learn from behaviors that are shown to you, and sometimes you learn in the absence of behaviors. And I would say one of the things that um, I realized very early on 
is that in the absence of internal communication, narratives get created without you. So if you're in a management position and you're not fully communicating what you're doing and why you're doing it to your people, then they are creating the narratives themselves. And that not, might not necessarily be exactly what you actually intended in terms of your mission, your vision, what you expect of your people. And so um, it taught me the importance of communication internally as much as externally. Yeah, got it. And that, that's that's actually you know, words to live by, not only in work, but also in marriage. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I think that's... Uh, that's a little too close yeah, to Yes. <laughs> um, so what was, you know, what was something that you failed at uh, early on that really bothered you and how did you overcome it? Um, one of the earliest failures I had was not being a strong advocate for myself. I kind of expected that my bosses would see what I was doing and see my accomplishments, acknowledge them, and either compensate me or change my title appropriately, and that they would just know I was doing a good job. And I was not very good at doing that. So I kind of continued to do my job, and I was happy not to get fired more than anything else. Um, and then I, I, I got to know a few other people who I saw were doing a really good job of that, and, and I asked for help. And the best thing that I learned at that time was the importance of having either a friend at work or a mentor at work or somebody like that that can help you see how to best position yourself. It is actually very hard to self-promote. People, I mean, there are certain people that are fantastic at it. Most people are not. And I certainly naturally was not. But having somebody to be a sounding board, and it's going to be somebody in your office because if it's somebody outside the office, they just don't get it. Mm -hmm. But if you have somebody at the office that can help you see your accomplishments and help you contextualize that so you can both advocate for yourself. And I don't mean just be like a big shot, but writing your own self-review, learning how to merchandise your accomplishments. It's incredibly important. So, you know, that's something I want to touch upon because you are one of the, you know, it's a very, uh, I would say, chauvinistic world we live in, especially in the media world, mm -hmm. right? You were one of the few women that were, not few, there were many women CEOs, but you got recognition, you you know, demanded in a sense. Do you feel that, you know, at the time it was because you just, they viewed you not as, oh, you're the best at your job, but you're a woman? Or did you just feel that they were just like, okay, just what it is? Like they didn't view you the same as they viewed your male counterpart? Yeah, I think to say that gender doesn't play a role in this is a, it would be a misnomer. Um, but I do think that there there became a moment where the, the switch was flipped. And that would probably be when I became CEO. So up until the point I became CEO, it didn't matter what I was. Yeah. Um, it, it was just a matter of like, were you doing your job? Were you not doing your job? But once I became CEO at 360i, it was like, oh, woman CEO at an ad agency. And then it, it kind of changed a lot of things that if you kind of look at the career trajectory, that's when the awards started coming mm. in. That's when the articles started coming out because it was such an anomaly. So was I any better than a man at my job? I don't think it was a gender issue. It's a meritocracy issue. Yeah. If I sucked, I wouldn't have gotten to be the CEO in the first place. Um, but I do think the novelty um, played a role, but that was after I was named. So, you know, like, first you have to get, first I got into the position. Yeah. And then it was like, oh, well, check that out. 
<laughs> so, so that that's you know that leads me into the whole three hundred and sixty i right. So, you know, you left IDT, you know, Netphone, um, and you know, so when did you? Had you even come? And you between that, you were doing kayak, yes, which is a PR, right? Mm-hmm. So, after kayak, I mean, how did you come into three hundred and sixty i? They were not a big. You know, agency back then. No, no, that was part of my job. <laughs> um, yes, so I left IDT Netophone in uh, 2004. Frankly, I didn't see any more growth for myself, and so I started Kayak because what, the thing that I really had loved um, at IDT Netophone were the early years. I loved taking brands from nothing and helping them grow. And so I said, I could do that for a whole bunch of companies at the same time and get and develop not just muscle memory, but apply those learnings. Mm-hmm. And so I did that for a whole bunch of companies. I worked with a number of startups, um, helping them evolve not just their PR, but their overall corporate branding, corp comms, and setting them up for growth. I stayed actually on with uh, IDT Netsphone, helping consult with them. Um, I worked with Macromedia, helping them sell to Adobe. Mm-hmm. Um, I worked with a lot of other companies in the tech space. And one of the companies I was working with was this regional search engine marketing agency called 360i. Yeah, people don't remember search engine marketing agency. Exactly. <laughs> That's SEM for people. Yes. Yes. Oh, um, so they were one of your clients. They were one of my clients. And because they were in the search optimization business, SEM, SEO, um, I was there to help them bring the importance of SEM, SEO to a larger scale. They were a regional company, a regional agency. We were helping them go national. Um, But one of the things that we identified very early on in terms of growth trajectory outside of just the comms component was really where incremental revenue could be found. And one of the incremental revenue sources was on SEO, and it was through link building. Well, turns out one of the best way to get inbound links is through PR. Um, And so instead of focusing exclusively on 360i's uh, brand itself, I looked at 360i's clients and said, how can we help drive more inbound links via PR for those brands, thereby increasing their search rankings? And so we built a line of business within 360i which at the time we called Digital Word of Mouth, which we uh, actually created the trademark for, Digital Word of Mouth, or DWOM, which basically was digital PR to drive inbound links. One of the outcomes was increased SEO. Another one was great brand affinity. Now, this was, again, in like 2004, 2005. And so it was just when um, Google had bought YouTube, blogs were getting big. At the time, Facebook was still restricted to college students. Twitter didn't exist, Instagram didn't exist. So it was the early stages even, of social media. Even more so, mobile phones didn't, didn't really exist, like the smartphones. No smartphones. Yeah. We were all on our Blackberries yeah. if we were lucky. Yeah. Um, yeah, so none of that existed. But the origins of user-generated content were starting to take off. And so we took advantage of that to drive that. And that turned out to be a really big business. By the way, digital word of mouth today is what we call influencer marketing. Exactly. Um, but but that was something that we had started that did not exist previously. And so it was at the point where marketers were undercrediting those influencers and influencers were overcrediting themselves. And we sat at the epicenter to reconcile that. That was the genesis of social media at 360i. That business took off so fast that it was growing so much faster than anything I was doing at Kayak. Mm-hmm. So I resigned all my clients at Kayak and I joined 360i full time to run that group. 
And that group became the social media group where we, you know, we built creative capabilities, we built strategic uh, capabilities, research. And so 360i went from being a search agency to being a search and social agency. And over time, a full, a full, a service, full service ad agency. Um, but that was over, you know, oh, a 13-year period. You know, so, so when, you, when you left, you know, to go to 360i, did you have ambitions? Did you think about, uh, you know, the CEO role? Do you go in there just saying, okay, this is, I, there's a great opportunity and this is what I'm going to just build out. I'm going to do the best I can, build it out. There's so much growth there. Yeah, I had no ambitions to be CEO. If that if that becomes the big headline of this, I would be very unhappy. Uh, but I had no ambitions to be yeah. CEO. What I had ambition to do was make something out of nothing. I love making something out of nothing and cre- and seeing potential before it can be realized and 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 getting an unfair advantage in the marketplace. And I did that at IDT Netzaphone. I did that at Kayak when I started it. And I did it at 360i, built entire business units from nothing, Mm -hmm. grew capabilities that didn't exist, changed the mindset of an organization from being purely performance media to being holistic marketing communications. And that's what excited me. The outgrowth of that became the, you know, because I was growing the business so much, the business got bigger and I was running a larger part of it as it went. Yeah. Um, and so eventually, yeah, I became CEO, but it was a consequence of an action, <laughs> uh, not necessarily part of the game plan. So, so when, when that, you know, and when you started, right, I think there were 30 people when you came Correct. on board. So it's a small company. Yes. By no means it was big. No. And so the company environment was very startup-ish, was, you know, the hustle and bustle, et cetera. Yeah. And so when did you become CEO? From there, uh, I became CEO in late 2013. 2013. So, and how many employees were there at the time? Uh, at least 700, maybe 800. Oh, so it grew that much over that time. Yeah, over that time it grew significantly. Wow! Yeah. And no outside funding. Uh, no, we, no. Well, we 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 got bought by Dentsu okay. in 2010, 2011, something like that. Okay, okay. So sorry, my dates are a little fuzzy. Uh, it's, now. it's 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 been a while. Yeah. You know, so were you nervous when you got the call? Like, you know, did you think, well, you know, it's about time, or did you say, well, I, you know, I don't know if I really want it. Let me, you know, what was going through your mind uh, on the becoming CEO? Yeah. So. The guy who had been the CEO before, Brian Weiner, who, by the way, is the CEO of Comscore now, um, Brian had been CEO for quite some time. He and I had worked together, by the way, at Netzophone as well. Mm-hmm. So we've, we've worked together a very long time. Um, Brian approached me and said, I don't want to be CEO anymore. I want to be chairman. And so you have a choice. You can become CEO or I can hire a CEO. But this is your job to lose. So if you want it, it's yours. And I, I kind of didn't want it, but I really didn't want a new boss. <laughs> um, and so we spent six months with me apprenticing as CEO without anybody knowing that this was going on. But I had to learn what it was like to be in the hot seat. It's that going from president to CEO was a huge shift. Huge shift. How so? It's very lonely at the top. (laughs) Um, You know, you look to the left and you look to the right and every decision is yours, good or bad. Um, And so the ownership and accountability is way more intense than I ever could have imagined. Um, 
and yeah, there, and, and I'm not an ivory tower kind of person. I'm, I, anybody who knows me knows I'm very hands-on. So it's not like I could give, give myself distance or anything like that. So yeah, it was, it was a huge shift to go from that and to learn how to make decisions with as much information as you possibly can, but always knowing that you're working with some element of imperfect information. So, you know, how did you feel that you made your mark? Or, or even before that, is there anything as a CEO that you went in there saying, okay, I want to, you know, change or, well, at least also to make your mark. Like, is there anything specific that you said, you know what, Brian did a great job, but if I'm going to be here, I know certain things that I see that I want to shift or I want to change. Yeah. I mean, I think I, I did a lot um, specifically to make my mark, but it wasn't changing the trajectory or the vision of the company. Mm-hmm. We had developed that vision together from the outset, and we had been working together on that for the outset. So um, the goal wasn't to say, well, this is the Sarah flavor of 360i. Yeah. Like 360i is an amalgamation of the totality of the organization and its culture, um, but I certainly wasn't a babysitter yeah. either. <laughs> um, but, you know, each of us have our own personalities and our own ways of of running the organization, one of the things I really tried to do is create a greater degree of um, understanding and empathy for both clients and people, um, try to create a much more open degree of dialogue within the employee base, um, small groups, big groups. And it's not to say Brian didn't, it was mm-hmm. just something that I, it, uh, Brian was excellent at it, um, but it was just something that I had taken on so that I could get a better understanding and empathy of what it's like at different levels and different geographies. It's a big part of what, what I really deeply cared about. What was the challenge that you faced as a CEO that you felt that really, if there is one that defined, you know, your, 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 your role there, like a critical point in time where, you know, either, you know, it was a really deadline that a client really needed and, you know, the company just had to crush it or was it something a little bit more drastic? Nothing particularly drastic. <laughs> I mean, every day was a different um, set of call it opportunities and fire drills. Um, there were days that it felt like a you know like a game of whack a mole, but it's no different in any in any job. It, like it was a high velocity, it was a high velocity environment, and mm. and and I was as much of a contributor to that as anybody else to create that high velocity environment. You know, in the agency world, you're constantly either in competition for clients, in competition for talent, in competition for mindshare. So I think that's really where, uh, you know, the the day-to-day components of it is, what's the issue I'm addressing right here, right now? Is it a talent issue? Is it a client issue? How do we make the work better? Like there was, there were always those things. And as with everything you talk about in marriage, like in marriage, in life, in, in your job, you have to learn how to pick your battles. How hard was it making your mark as a female CEO? And did you view yourself more as you know? I, I'm, I, you know, I'm a woman. I, you know, a lot of responsibility. People are looking at me. Or you just said, you know what? I'm putting my head down. I'm the CEO. It doesn't make a difference. A man, man, woman makes no difference. I'm just doing my job, and that's it. Or did you feel a responsibility to, you know, have a lot of press on you as a as a woman in in, in, a, in a really male dominated industry? Um, the ad tech and agency side, did you feel a responsibility to leave your mark or that people were looking up to you? I think in any leadership position, you have to be mindful of what the implications are. 
I think in, in no, no matter who you are, and that goes for everything that you represent, because people look at you, and it, it could be it could be your gender, it could be your, your religion, it could be how you look. There could be so many different things that you represent, whether you like it or not. Um, and I think for me, the goal was just to make sure that I was doing the best job that I could. I think more important than any of that was that I was filling the shoes of somebody who had the job for 10 years and did a very, very good job for the 10 years that he did it. Mm -hmm. And so it it was trying to make sure, not that I was making my mark or doing anything um, special or having my own secret sauce, but just making sure that I was making the agency continue on its success plan, but, you know, doing it in a way that felt right for my personality and my leadership style. Got it. And, and, you know, so you, you, you took over, you know, you were 30 people when you started, you know, at 360i and you, when you left, you were at a thousand. So, you know, that's a, that's, <laughs> that's a pretty, you know, rapid um, growth spurt. And so how did you go so rapidly? Like, you know, and also what were some key hires that you had as CEO? Um, Betty, you know, we both have David Berkowitz, who's a good friend of both of ours. How did you find him? I mean, because he was definitely a rock star when he was at 360 and he moved on to a number of different things. Sure. I think a lot of the growth came from seeing where the marketplace was going and being able to capitalize very quickly on that. And the first area was social media. So when I started in, you know, in, in the mid or the mid two thousands, I guess, um, that was shortly after Google had bought YouTube blogs were getting hot Facebook actually at the time was still only available to college students, Twitter, Instagram, Snapchat didn't even exist. But we saw the importance of user-generated content influencing uh, consumer opinion, and if nothing else, influencing the Google results, and saw that opportunity and realized that marketers really weren't capitalizing on that, and there weren't any other agencies that were very good at, at handling that, that element. And so... That was the first kind of opportunity that we saw as, oh, this is something that's going to help us grow. I mean, the company was a search company when I got there. So I take no credit for building, building search um, yeah. in the ground up. That, that wasn't me. But social, social was my, my first probably big chapter. Um, and so that was a big element of the growth. And David was one of the first hires uh, that we made. And it was because he was a very early thought leader and he was curious. and um, and, and really was able to, to to see where things were going from an emerging media perspective. And I think we partnered well, me, David, Brian, on balancing, seeing where the opportunities were from a consumer behavior perspective, and then figuring out what was right for marketers and what mm-hmm. maybe was not a great move for marketers. Um, let's, let's just use Second Life as an example. Yeah. So there, yeah. but, but there were, yeah, so there, there were, conversations that that we would have frequently. So David was certainly helpful in the early years and helping shape what direction we were going into because he was able to see things and test things that um, that were well beyond my, my, my reach and my scope and my and even my ability to understand in, in those years. So social grew significantly because the landscape grew significantly. So first it was about our media, about blogs, and then Facebook opened up to everybody. And that became obviously a big opportunity, to say the least, um, followed by Twitter and Instagram and figuring out and helping brands figure out how to navigate that. So, so that was something that helped us grow and, and, still, and still does to this day. But with that came other opportunities like creative. 
So social media in, in its original form really was mostly text-based, uh, text-based or user-generated video. But then when you start thinking about brand content and how much better brand content has gotten over the years, it means you have to invest differently. You're not just looking for copywriters, you're looking for creative strength. Mm-hmm. So we built a creative group you know, from nothing. Um, we did acquire a small company of, I can't remember how many people were there, but a couple of dozen. Um, that helped us with a, from a production perspective, but the creative team grew significantly to meet those needs. And then we put a strategy layer on top of that too. And we hired a chief strategy officer back in 2010, 2011, Eileen Icon, who really helped solidify our strategic leadership at the time. Mm-hmm. Um, and then a few years ago, hiring Abby Clausen, who was the, uh, who was the editor of Ad Age. And really helped to bring a journalistic integrity and a strength in leadership um, that that helped us as well. So the growth was highly organic, but it was really based on changes in consumer behavior and finding the right opportunities for marketers. Got it. And what qualities did you look for in employees? Right? It was you, you know you were, it was a pretty cohesive group. You know, so what qualities did you did you look for? You know, try and identify when you were hiring. Yeah, it's. It, it's four things. I would say the first thing is an intellectual curiosity. Um, if you if you're going to be in an ad agency environment, you have to have that curiosity. I think it's something David really had, um, still has, obviously. Um, but you ha- you have to be able to, to 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 think well outside of what your competitors are doing or what is available in the market. You have to think about what's possible. So the curiosity thing, and it really became a, a something that we talked about instead of asking. You know, instead of kind of accepting things, you kind of ask yourself, well, why not? Um, and what's behind the corner? And so the, there's there's a lot of stuff um, that was rooted. Uh, we, we used to say we're powered by curiosity. And then we have these three core values. And core values can be something, you know, you throw up on a, on a piece of paper, you print on a mug, and it stays there. But it really was the way we interviewed for, for people. And it was the way that we behaved. It was the way we rewarded people which is passion, purpose, and perseverance. And passion was all about, you know, you got you to love what you do, but also you got to love who you work with. You've got to be excited to come to work and bring that A-game and whatever, whatever your hobbies are and stuff like that, you got to bring that passion with you every day. Mm-hmm. Purpose was, was just about focus. You know, you kind of look at that curiosity um, angle and it's, that, that, it could get easy to be, it could be easy to be distracted um, when you are curious, so balancing that with purpose and saying, okay, am I actually focused on achievement or am I just doing a lot of activity? Um, I think it was uh, John Wooden who said, never confuse activity with achievement. <laughs> and that's really important. Not that I'm a big college basketball fan, but but I do like a lot of Woodenism. I, I, I do the like third, the reference. It's, it's a good reference. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Um, the, the, the third was perseverance, which I think um, when you're when you're a bit of a, renegade ad agency competing against agencies that have been around in some cases for a hundred years. You you have to have uh, just this, this this spirit of never giving up. And or if you get if one door closes or maybe the front door is locked, you gotta figure out how to climb through a window. So that problem solving and the perseverance is really important. And we would interview for those qualities. Got it. And what did you want for your employees? Like what was the you know, again, as a CEO, I'm sure you thought more than just, you know, extracting value from them in terms of, 
you know, profit and loss. But what did you try and give them, you know, as they were growing within your company? I think to give to the employees, we really believe in servant leadership. It's it's a, it's actually a core value we've instilled at Comscore now, and the servant leadership is incredibly important because you have to be there to help your employees grow. That means starting your meetings with, how can I help you? Not what have you done for me lately, which is a completely different mindset for a lot of people. Um, I really tried a lot, especially because it's frankly how my career was successful, growing from the bottom up mm-hmm. in trying to help people find ways to continue to succeed in the company, even if it meant in an unconventional way, so long as it was helpful to them and helpful to the company. But when they felt like they were either timing out or didn't see continued evolution for themselves, I think the most the, the most kind thing you can do in that instance is say, look, I know you're ambitious. I just don't know if I have the right thing for you. And that's when you really are looking out for the best interest of the employee and the organization um, versus trying to find something that's just not fightable anymore. And there are plenty of people, including my successor, Jerry Belsky, who moved up um, within the organization from multiple from, from multiple different angles and are incredibly successful because there was a path that worked for them and worked for the organization. And then there are some people that, you know, had to tap out early, but we did it with them because they, they had reached the capacity of what they could provide or what were or what um, they wanted to provide. And that's when you have to know it's not time anymore, you know? And so, you know, what was, you know, why don't we go to your first pitch? I mean, that's something I like to also know, like your first, you know, your first pitch when you were at 360i, you know, had, had that, you know, walk us through that a bit. I mean, it was, there's always, it's always fun to hear, you know, <laughs> that's, that's something I want to, a lot of the entrepreneurs and the founders that listen, you know, they go through all this, they go through a lot of trial tribulations and, you know, I want, I'm trying to share with them other people who've succeeded in, it's not always the easiest thing, but, you know, again, perseverance is definitely key to it. So could you just walk us through that? Gosh. Okay. So my, my, my first pitch ever was a very, was a very small pitch, but it was uh, highly memorable. Um, it was for Home and Garden Television. And we were trying to pitch them to have us, Help them out with gaining awareness for a new show called Living with Ed, um, which is about Ed Begley Jr., which eventually moved on to another network that it premiered originally on Home and Garden Television. And we didn't have a lot of lead time, and they were looking for creative solutions. Well, the first thing we did was Google Living with Ed, and it turned out that when you Google Living with Ed, you come up with a lot of results um, from Cialis and Viagra because it's really living with ED that is the result, not living with Ed Begley Jr. <laughs> the first thing we had to do was try to figure out how we could dominate the search results so that even if you heard about the show, maybe you saw a, pro- a promo and you wanted to know what time it was on because this was like pre, you know, DVR. I think TiVo existed, but certainly not to the DVR as it was. The, you know, day date time network was. The, the language you know, back in the day, whatever it was, 15 years ago. And uh, so, but Google was the new TV guide. So we had to come up with a strategy. First of all, that was the core insight that Googling living with Ed results of basically you were nowhere in the search results and what was there was completely irrelevant. Um, so we had to figure out how to fix that. And so we blended the agency's strength in search 
with the new thought that I was bringing to the equation, which was digital PR, and started this major blogger outreach campaign. We pitched this major blogger outreach campaign to reach out to bloggers and get them to write about the show and link back, which would increase the search results. Now, this may seem like a no-brainer. I mean, influencer marketing is something that really talks about right now. But at the time, marketers completely undercredited bloggers and bloggers completely overcredited themselves. And so um, even pitching this and saying, um, we're going to pitch bloggers. And the client was like, wait, you're going to pitch like guys who like live in their parents' basement and just like eat Doritos all day? Yes, those are the people that are going to influence your search results. Um, and it worked. Um, but I was the only person on staff. And then and actually David Berkowitz ended up help, helping out on this one where we were pitching. Um, at the time, HuffPo was there. Perez Hilton was there. But there were these guys who were blogging like off the grid with some like crazy weirdo satellite internet connections. Um, but it worked. Uh, we won and it worked. And I don't know if it still works today, but if you Google Living with Ed, you might see some of our, our promos. But we got Cialis off to page five in search results, which basically is that area. So we, we won the pitch. We won the business. The show uh, got, got the ratings that it was looking for. And it was oh. most certainly unconventional. That's great. And, and so, you know, I'm going to shift a little bit now and, and we're going to just talk a little bit more about, you know, being viewed as a role model for, for girls. I know you did it. You started a really great initiative. You know, when you were at 360i, you know, tell us a little bit more about that. You know, because again, that's something that I, you know, I think more people, especially in the tech community, more CEOs and founders need to be a little bit more cognizant of paying it forward. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know, there. One of the things that at ad agencies more often uh, than not is usually ad agencies take on like a pet project or two that they're going to do pro bono based on something that somebody in leadership deeply cares about. They've got some charity that they work on and they do a lot of pro bono work. And often that results in a lot of awards because it's so philanthropic and whatnot. The the area that I looked at is why do we have to care about just what I care about? There were so many other people that had so many causes that were important to them. Um, But of course you can't run a company on pro bono because then you have no money. So we came up with this idea called the DEN, which is Digital Education for Nonprofits. And, you know, one of the highest forms of charity is instead of giving a man to uh, giving a man a fish or a woman is teaching a man or woman to fish because instead of eating for a day, you eat for life. And so we thought instead of doing these one-off ad campaigns for, for nonprofits here and there, we could teach them the kinds of skills that would help them better better get the visibility that they needed for their organization. And so we started a series of workshops called the DEN, Digital Education for Nonprofits, where we would go from city to city and also webcast the, the same kind of skills that we were using to help manage big brands and help them win in the marketplace. We would do for personnel strapped nonprofits where maybe the marketing department is either one or half of a person or they're only a couple of years out of school and they don't have the diversified experience that a robust award-winning ad agency would have. And so over the course of a couple of years, we were able to train hundreds of nonprofits. We were able to reach them all over the world and help them get better at their digital marketing. The things that were really the most challenging, things like how do you 
optimize your search, how to build a presence in social, um, if they were getting gift and kind media from, uh, from other publishers, how to maximize the value of that. And the impact was tremendous, both in terms of who we were able to affect and how we were able to make them more successful in their own nonprofit organizations, but also for our employees, because we weren't just helping the, the issues that mattered at the top. It was, it didn't matter if you were affiliated with a nonprofit, you just invited them to come to the den and they got value from it too. And so it was really, um, it was one, one of the things I'm most proud about from my time, my time at 360i. And I'm just so happy to know that it's continuing after I've left. Maybe want to join Comscore. Uh, gosh, there were a couple of different reasons. First of all, I knew I wasn't going to stay at 360i forever, but admittedly, um, it was kind of a nice game to have the chairwoman role. And I had spent so many years working on transition um, with Jared, but I, I was looking forward to being able to not be in the operational function of it. But a couple of things happened uh, that that made that change. The first was. Um, as somebody who had been in marketing for quite some time, one of the biggest areas to tackle was answering the very simple question of, did it work? Did all of this money that I spent actually work in changing behavior? And what parts about it worked? Or was I spending too much, too little? And there were a lot of different reasons you can attribute to it, but it was much harder to get the, the meat behind it. The second part was, um, I was on the board of directors of the 4A's and which is the American Association of Advertising Agencies. And once a year, we get together with the 4As and the IAB, which represents the publishing community, and the ANA, which represents the marketers. And we all got together and we started talking about a very heavy topic, which is measurement. And to me, it felt like a tower of Babel. We were all talking past each other. The conversations went all over the place, but I felt like we weren't actually addressing some of the core problems in our industry and the core areas of opportunity to be successful. And that happened just, uh, I had been chairwoman of 360i for just a couple of months when that happened. And by then, Brian Wiener, who was formerly my boss at, at 360i, and somebody I've worked with for close to two decades, had already moved over to Comscore. And I left that meeting, and I called him, and I said, wow, I actually see what you're trying to do here, and I think I want to be a part of this. Um, so it was a combination of seeing where the opportunity was and how... Measurement really needs a massive overhaul, but also being able to work with somebody that I've known and trusted for a very long time. Got it. I, I, I hear that. And, and so, you know, uh, you know, um, what's you, what's your vision for 2019? So I think there's there's a lot of opportunity in the marketplace. I think the the biggest opportunity really is on cross platform measurement. So when you think about one of the biggest opportunities of what has happened in the marketplace is the fragmentation of video consumption. And a lot of that is due to the uptake in streaming um, and video on demand. So people are now consuming content, premium video content in so many different ways. You might be watching a great program on your phone. You might be um, watching streaming content on a big TV. It's happening in all different places, um, but it's not all measured equally. And there's no unduplication between all of those places. So it's very hard as an advertiser, if you are advertising against this content, to know the efficacy of where it's being seen, how it's being seen, 
And whether or not you're reaching the same person over and over again, um, or her, what, where, where, the, where basically you're actually getting people and, and able to um, optimize that. Big, big, big industry issue that has not yet been solved. And that's something that Comscore is in beta right now um, with Comscore campaign ratings. And I think that that is a big initiative for us is solving cross-platform measurements. I also think that there's a lot to be done with Comscore and its culture. Um, it's a company that was merged with a, another very large company called FriendTrack three years ago. And we have a lot of opportunity to create um, a fantastic culture. And uh, I'm excited to to do a lot more work on that front as well. Got it. Got it. That's, that's, I mean, and, and that's great. I mean, so, you know, it's not easy re- repairing a brand. Right, I mean, because that's definitely part of the challenge that you guys are facing now. Is if people don't realize Comscore is still a huge. Company. I mean, it's 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 pretty. It's a pretty you know revenue wise, and and in terms of reach, it's pretty substantial. Oh yeah, I mean we 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 basically have a tremendous digital footprint, a tremendous footprint of being able to measure television viewing at the census level. It's tremendous. And I think Comscore has very strong awareness, but has a tremendous opportunity on better understanding what it is capable of doing. Um, Because there are those in the know that certainly understanding news us, and obviously we've got a very large organization, we've got 750 employees, hundreds of millions of dollars in revenue, but the opportunity to go from awareness to broader consideration and action is one of the reasons I joined. Very cool. And so, you know, we're going to, we're going to wind it down. So a few, a few more fun questions now. Now, what did you want to be when you were 15? A teacher. teacher. Not just any teacher. I wanted to be a Judaic studies Bible teacher. (laughs) Interesting. And where, where did you veer, of course, there? Where did I veer, of course? Um, well, I think it's, it kind of goes back to an earlier question you asked about role modeling. When I was in the fourth grade, I had a tremendous teacher. She was amazing, um, who turned me on to Judaic studies like nobody had in the past. I mean, I was a whopping 10 years old, but before that, it was kind of <laughs> rote, and she made it fun. Um, and she got me, I mean, th- there were things that I learned in the fourth grade that I could still repeat back now, and I don't know what I've learned since or before. <laughs> um, and the fact that she was, and it's kind of sad, but I can remember things from 30 plus years ago, but not what I had for breakfast. <laughs> the, the amazing thing about that was she just was able to turn me on, um, and it, uh, to, to a topic that was kind of dry for me in the past. And I wanted to be able to do that for other people. The irony of it all is that my husband ended up becoming a teacher and I ended up going into this. Um, but it turned when I got into when I when I got to college and I started enrolling in journalism classes and just for fun and I fell in love with journalism and really storytelling which actually is not that far of a derivative from teaching and why I got excited about it um, and I ended up going really deep into journalism that was really what I wanted to do when I was in college um, and then ended up on the dark side of PR and here I am. Got that. And, and so, you know, what habit do you have? I, I like to ask this to all, all the guests on my podcast that, you know, that keeps you on top of your game, you know, a daily habit or whatever it may be. 
What case me to have my game? Um, can I get religious for a second? Sure. Shabbat. Um, so I'm Sabbath observant, which means that from sundown on Friday until Saturday night, I am completely unplugged, which I guess is antithetical to the name of your podcast. Um, <laughs> but but there, you know, people talk about the need to take vacation uh, in your job and how critical it is to refresh and whatnot, and the ability to know that no matter what, I get that um, vacation and that ability to unplug once a week. It is the number one reason why I have not burnt out, um, and it's the most amazing thing. That is that is my secret. And whether you are observant Jewish or not, I highly recommend finding ways to force the unplugging it is the most amazing feeling got it and and what what's a productivity wise what do you suggest for founders entrepreneurs be more productive <laughs> everybody's got to find their own thing i mean i have the most bizarre um favorite thing we, like, we, we, water- we, like, we like bizarre Okay, so there's this waterproof notepad that I bought on Amazon for like eight bucks um, that I use when I have ideas in the shower. And people say they have the the best ideas in the shower. I I don't know that I have the best ideas, but I I have a hard time tracking my to-do list if I can't write it down immediately. And when I'm in the shower and I think of things, it used to really frustrate me that I couldn't write it down. (laughs) So... um, the, but when when I get to the office and somebody sees the, the scribble on my waterproof notepad, they're like, "Oh boy, Sarah's got a lot of ideas. It's going to be a busy day." <laughs> I hear that. That's it's actually. I don't think I'm going to hear that one again. But that, that's a great. I have to look at that on Amazon. Um, and, and so, just the last two questions before before you know we end it. So, what podcast do you listen to besides mine? And this um, is plug for plug besides, in, of course. Besides. Besides yours, everybody should listen to Plugged In, Ellie Mandelbaum. Um, I, I happen to really just like the daily. I don't listen to a lot of podcasts besides, of course, this one um, and the daily on uh, the New York Times. I mean, I, it's one of the top ones, if not the top one in the States. Um, but it's a classic analysis of what's going on in the world and goes that deep into different um, topics. I just, I really like it. Got it. And last last question is, what, what books are you currently reading? Or would you recommend? Um, what, what would I recommend and what am I reading? Okay, there are a couple that I recommend. Number one, uh, The Hard Thing About Hard Things by Ben Horowitz. If anybody's ever going to go into a super-duper leadership position, meaning like being the number one person, The Hard Thing About Hard Things is a fantastic look at what you have to do when there are a lot of imperfect choices and you have to make choices in some very difficult initiatives. It's a, it's a much more raw look at leadership, and I thought it was fantastic. Another one is The Corner Office by Adam Bryant, which is just a fantastic set of leadership learnings uh, from lots of different leaders. And then one of my favorite ones is The Power of Habit by Charles Duhigg, um, which some might see as a business book. Some might just see as a personal uh, personal interest. I thought it was fantastic in terms of how to create good behaviors as well as break bad habits. And while I still have plenty of bad habits, I have fewer now than I did before. Got it. Well, thank you so much for your time. I appreciate it. And have a great day. Thank you, Ellie. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Bye-bye. Love this episode of the Plugged In Podcast? Head over to iTunes to subscribe, rate, and leave a review. It's very much appreciated. Thank you.
This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.